This morning we continue through our sermon series on God with us by looking at the New Testament text from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, that's on page number 1004. Otherwise, as always, the words will be on the screen and you can read them along there. Again, in Pew Bibles on page number 1004 from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we've been highlighting with the lighting of each candle and in every message through this Advent series, in many ways, Advent begins in the dark. And through this series, we have talked about the darkness of being lost for direction. We've talked about emotional darkness, of just the struggle of the, the burdens in this world. We've talked about the darkness that's created by our own sin and rebellion against God. And in each one of those moments, we've seen through these incredible stories of the Old Testament, experiences that God gave to Moses and Elijah and Ezekiel, how into that darkness, the presence of God, God with us, brings guidance, brings hope, brings forgiveness and reconciliation. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about the darkness of doubt. In one of the first sermons I preached in this series, I mentioned the difficulty that exists in worshiping an invisible God. And in many ways, that truth undergirds a lot of what we've been talking about in this sermon series. And yet, I hope and trust that every single one of you that calls themselves a Christian can think back to experiences in your life that though you worship an invisible God, you knew without a doubt of his glory, of his presence, of his just joy in your life. 
Perhaps you're one of the many in our congregation that have had experiences at High Camp or Mount Hermon, these Christian conferences that have been a part of our church for uh, many generations now, at least two. And you can think about times of worship or Bible study there where God was with you, where the worship was so real, it was undeniable that his presence was there. Perhaps you're one of the many that had a friend, a relative, family member who was sick or who was broken and there was no earthly help for them. And so you went to the Lord and you desperately prayed for healing, for change. And God showed up and answered those prayers. And it was undeniable that he worked a miracle in that person's life. Physical healing or change came about in their life. And God brought something incredible. Or maybe you're just one of the many who was raised in the church, being taught these incredible stories, and, and you accepted them as true, but even though there wasn't a specific moment or a specific time, you slowly began to realize that these stories weren't just stories of stuff that happened in the past, but the revelation of Scripture was telling you about a God that knew you, that loved you, that sent his son into the world to forgive your sins. And because of that, you said, this has to be an important part of my life. And, and so you professed your faith. You claimed that God was your God and you were going to live for him and serve him in a very real way. And in all of those experiences and joys, God was real. But then, time went on. And as much as you longed for those moments, those glimpses that you once had, they didn't show up as much. Despite the prayers that were answered in the past, more sickness came into your life and, and you prayed again. But this time, the healing didn't come. The restoration wasn't there. There were times when, when you gave yourself to devotional practices and worshipped, but that, that spark, it just didn't hit the same way, and it just seemed to feel mundane. And you long for that glimpse of God. You long for that, that experience. But the darkness just overshadowed that experience. And it seemed like that God that at one point was so close started to feel more distance and absence. And into that, you started to ask some very dark, hard questions. Where is God? Were those moments really real or were they just something where I got caught up in the moment and, and it wasn't, uh, an ex uh, it was just an emotional experience, not a religious experience? Maybe God isn't as powerful or, or faithful as I thought he might have been because the struggles continue. Where is the light that I long to see? That's what I'm talking about when I talk about the, the darkness of doubt. And I mentioned that this morning 
Because in a lot of ways, that was what was going on around the context of the story that we read this morning. Now, unlike the other messages, uh, this morning I want to first look at the event itself, and then we'll fill in the context where this event took place to broaden our understanding. In many ways, this text does stand alone. We are told that after something happened six days later, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he goes with them up on top of a mountain. This will literally be a mountaintop experience. And while they are there, as though this is something almost normal or mundane in very succinct words, Mark says that Jesus was transfigured before them. That Greek word for transfigured, it sounds like and is very much the word that we get uh, metamorphosis from. So Jesus was metamorphosized. He was transformed before them. And Mark doesn't explain exactly what that means, but he does say that what they experienced was his clothes becoming radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Jesus himself is shining forth glory in front of his disciples. And then we're told that Elijah and Moses show up and they are there with Jesus talking with him. And as soon as we see that, we have many questions that come to mind. First of all, how did these three disciples know that this was Elijah and that this was Moses? What were they talking about with Jesus? Did they talk to the disciples as well? Or were the disciples able to listen in on this conversation? And, and why was it Moses and Elijah there? And again, those are questions that Mark it doesn't seem like he wants to answer for us. But that doesn't stop people from trying to guess the answer to those questions, especially along the lines of, well, why was it Elijah and Moses? Some highlight the link to the other stories that we've already looked at, how these two men were men who had unique experiences previously with God on the mountaintop. And now in the New Testament, they are present when the disciples have a similar experience. Others highlight the fact that Moses in many ways is a representative of the Old Testament law. And Elijah can be seen in many ways as a figurehead, a representative of the Old Testament prophets. And so we see their presence being an indication that Jesus is fulfilling all that was pointed to in the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. Regardless of why they're there, in the moment and in the scene, Peter, the disciple who's never afraid to speak his mind, decides that it's so good that they're there, we need to set up three tents for the three people that are with us. And again, we wonder, well, why did Peter want to do this? And there's lots of examples and ideas that people speculate on about this as well. Maybe there are theological and thematic allusions to the festival of tabernacles, that celebration and memory of how God provided in the wilderness through his presence. 
Or maybe Peter thought, this is what I've been waiting for for Jesus. This is why he came. This is who he was to be. And so let's capture this and start inviting others to come and see the glory that we've been waiting for Jesus to reveal. Or maybe he just wanted to capture the moment and hold on to it a little bit longer. Again, Mark doesn't explain. All he says is that Peter said this because he was so terrified by what he was seeing. Then a cloud overshadows them all. And a voice comes from that cloud proclaiming, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And while again, we don't get much from Mark, as soon as we hear that, we recognize echoes to the very same voice that came from a cloud proclaiming something very similar at the baptism of Jesus, identifying him as his son. We have allusions to that cloud of glory we talked about last week that filled the tabernacle and that guided the Israelites during their wandering in the desert. It is very likely that while it might be a little hidden from us, the original readers would have heard those words and without a doubt thought back to an incredible promise that God had made through Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy 18.15. A significant promise that was made about a future prophet that said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. For hundreds and hundreds of years now, the Israelites had looked at that promise and had longed for that prophet like Moses. And in hearing that voice, listen to him. It was pointing that Jesus was that very prophet. But suddenly the whole experience comes to an end. Where there just was these glorious figures and this cloud and a voice from heaven. It's all gone. And all that's left is Jesus and his three disciples. And then despite the incredible experience that they had just had. Jesus as he often did in Mark tells his disciples not to tell anyone about what just happened. Until the son of man, that's himself, has risen from the dead which just confuse them all the much more and add them ask even more questions. It's in some ways a strange experience that raises more questions than it offers answers. And in, while there is a lot in all of those details we could dig into, let's go to the fundamentals that are undeniable about what this experience meant and what it was pointing to. It is undeniable that the voice from heaven is identifying Jesus as the very Son of God. It is undeniable that in this moment where Jesus changes in the presence of his disciples, that they are getting a glimpse of his true glory. His glory, as we soon shall sing, that was often and usually veiled in flesh. But in this moment, as Hebrews 1, 3 says, 
they got to see that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This Jesus is God in the flesh, and that's what they get a tiny glimpse of in this moment. Which was really significant for them, given the context that this passage comes from. As I already mentioned, the passage starts with the statement, and after six days, which immediately ties this event to what came before it, and it leads us to ask, well, what happened six days ago? And when we look at that, we go to Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8 is in many ways the very heart, the center of the gospel of Mark. Near the end of that uh, chapter, Jesus, having spent a lot of time with his disciples, gets to the very heart of the issue when he asks them outright, who do you say that I am? You've seen me, you've listened, you've watched the healings, but let's talk about, do you recognize who I truly am? And once again, Peter, the disciple never afraid to speak his mind, says rightly, you are the Christ. But as soon as Peter makes that claim, we immediately realize that what he thought that meant, and what Jesus was as the Christ were very different. Because right away, in response to that, Jesus starts to tell his disciples that as the Christ, he would suffer many things, that the Son of Man himself would be betrayed, arrested, and killed, and yet on the third day, rise again. And in hearing that, and because it was totally against what he thought it meant to be the Christ, Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, don't say that. And then Jesus, in response, rebukes Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. And then he further explains that not only would he, as the Christ, suffer and die, but anyone who comes after him and claims to be one of his disciples must also take up his cross and follow him. That the way of discipleship wasn't a way of a brilliant glory, but it was going to be a way of suffering and death. And those were the last words that Jesus had said. And so now, when they're on the mountain, and the voice from the heavens says, This is my son, listen to him, we think of those words that he spoke six days ago. And it's a clear testimony that what Jesus was as the Son of God and what he would do as suffering, dying, and being crucified were in no way incoherent. Yes, he was the glorious son of God, a divine being. But yes, he also would suffer, be arrested, die and rise again. That was his purpose for being there. So that's part 
of the context of this scripture's text. Furthermore, when these three disciples and Jesus come down from the mountain, what they are met with is a scene where the other disciples are arguing with the scribes. And they are arguing with them because the disciples had been brought a son who had a, a demon possessing him. And try as they might, they were unable to drive that demon out of this, this man. And so, in a hugely weird juxtaposition, we go to this huge adjustment from the mountain where they were with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah in an incredible moment of glory to the bottom of the mountain where they are met with arguing, with doubt and questions about this faithless generation and demons. And in all of those kinds of questions, and in that moment, all kinds of questions could be asked. Was that experience in the mountain real? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? And which was more real? The Jesus that they had just seen in his glory? Or the struggle of death that will come and the demons that they now face? And therein lies the reality of life. And the experiences that Moses had, or that Elijah had, or Ezekiel had, or these disciples had in their times of darkness, were these rare gifts of the presence of God to guide them. As one commentator suggested, and I'll read this, this is a quote from the NIV application commentary on this text. Most readers would prefer to be with the disciples basking in the glory on the mountaintop than to trudge along with the disciples as they struggle and fail to help an epileptic boy and end up surrounded by hissing opponents and a disgruntled crowd. We spend most of our lives, however, down below in the valley where the shadow of death hovers over us. And in this broken, dark, and sinful world, that is so true. While these moments of worship and answered prayers where we get glimpses of the true power and presence of God are wonderful and life-giving experiences. The reality is those aren't the norm. Most of the time in life we will deal with frustrations, with struggles, burdens, and big decisions about how to spend our time, our lives, our money, and our effort, and many of those times will feel very dark. Dark because we don't know where we're going. Dark because the emotional toll can just feel like too much at times. Dark because of the sins that we continue to participate in, and dark because of the questions and the doubts that we have. And yet in those moments, that's where we cling to and celebrate those glimpses of God's presence that we've been given. 
And at the time, like the disciples, we might not realize what's going on. We might have all kinds of questions about why this moment and, and how, what does this mean and, and how are we being led? But later on, for example, when Jesus did get arrested, when he did go to the cross, and then when he rose from the grave on the third day, the disciples could go back and remember this event and recognize what it was truly pointing them to. Not just the glory that Jesus had veiled in flesh throughout his life, but that glory that they would look forward to seeing again with him in eternity. In a similar way, you can't help but wonder how often Mary, watching her son be criticized, questioned, and abused and killed, had to go back to those memories of the visitation of the angel. The shepherds that showed up out of nowhere telling their story or the wise men who also offered their incredible gifts to this little child and was placed in a manger having been born in an animal stall. It looks incongruous. The glory of God and this baby in a manger. And yet, it's the same being. I don't know where you are in life right now. If you're asking a lot of questions, maybe this morning with the children singing was a moment where you got a glimpse of the greatness of our God. Or maybe you're down in the valley and you have those questions because there's, there's doubts and wonders about what's going on. But when we hold on to those moments that were so real, it is a reminder to keep going, to encourage one another. That the God we live for and, and worship, though invisible, is truly real, truly glorious, truly wonderful. And as he reveals himself to us, his presence not only gives us direction, hope and comfort, forgiveness and reconciliation, but the strength that we need to carry forward as we all seek to worship the wonderful God who came to this earth, veiled in flesh so that he could go to a cross so that ultimately you could be welcomed into his presence and live eternally with him. On that journey, may the light of the presence of Christ continue to sustain you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for those glimpses, those times where in worship or in the study of your word, in prayer, or just in the experiences of life as we look at the beauty of your creation and we stand in awe of the God that you are that stands above and behind it all. I pray, O oh Lord, for each and every person here this morning, that having, they will either have had those experiences or will one day have many where your presence, the reality of the God that you are in their life would be undeniable. Because we need those moments. Those moments to sustain us during the dark times of life. And that's where we remember that in a dark time of history,
you sent your one and only son to this world to be born in a manger so that we might be forgiven. And as we anticipate coming back here again tomorrow to worship and celebrate and remember that event, I pray, O oh Lord, that it would be another time where we can come and know of the God that you are. And then as we move forward in this life, struggling against demons and opposition and questions, may that sustain us as we serve you and live for you until that day where we are welcomed into your full glory and know you even as we are fully known. Thank you for these gifts. Receive our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.